Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard Podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing Lagan Valley filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. Good afternoon. You're really welcome. If you are a guest or a visitor, we really hope you feel at home. If we haven't met yet, I'm Andy, and senior pastor here. Um, and I just want to echo what Stu said about a weekend. Um, we really do expect this weekend to be a significant moment uh, in the life of our community and as part of this story. And uh, if you've only been with us for a few months uh, or a year, uh, it's just really important for us to get together to celebrate and to mark that. I just want to bring a couple of details around the age group stuff. I've been chatting to a few parents this week around the meal on the Saturday night, which says on it 12 plus. The reason we're doing that is there's no primary school provision Friday night and Saturday night, and the meal will run straight in to the evening session. Half five's the meal, and then seven o'clock we're, we're kicking off the evening session. The kind of headline is this, we will not have bouncers on the door IDing people that look under 12, okay? Um, but we just want to make sure, manage your expectations. Two to four is high rise, and then we've put a gap there. So if you need to get kids home or hand them over to childminders or babysitters or whatever, you can do that and then get back for uh, the meal and the evening session. Of course, if you want to manage them on the Friday night and Saturday night, you're welcome to. But we do just want to say, Friday night and Saturday night, we're going to be sharing stories uh, of people whose lives have been changed by Jesus in this community. And uh, they're just so powerful. But there is a bit of content in some of those stories that may not be appropriate for primary school age kids. Again, so we just want you to manage your expectations and all of that and uh, do all you can to make that work as best for your whole families. Um, Final thing is just to reiterate what Stu said around, uh, please, please sign up today if you know you're going to come. This community is notorious for signing up the day before something happens, which works perfectly for you, but makes Lou, who's just walked out, her life a complete nightmare as she's trying to manage uh, ordering food and sorting all that sort of stuff out. So if you know you're coming, please sign up today. That will really, really help us. Um, we said last week that we were going to bring you uh, up to speed with everything that's happening with us in buildings. We're in the final stages of negotiating and signing our lease for 12,000 square foot on the other side of that wall, which is very exciting. Uh, what's not so exciting is our solicitor got COVID. Um, so, yeah, I remember that thing that was kind of around for two years. So, um, nothing crazy has happened apart from we have been unable to... Uh, progress anything legally in the last week because of that. And whilst there are no issues there, as the board and I chatted this week, we feel it would be improper to say much more publicly before that process has moved on to the next stage. And so uh, I would love to say we're going to bring all that information next Sunday, but for those of you who have had COVID, you will know that predicting how uh, our friend's going to recover from that is pretty much impossible right now. So it may be that next Sunday we're able to do that. It may be that the Sunday morning of Awaken, we're actually doing all things building, which would make us look very strategic, right? That we're celebrating the 10th anniversary. And here, by the way, here's a whole new space, and this is going to be a part of the next 10 years. Um, just to kind of let you look behind the curtain for a second, we're never that 
organized or strategic. So uh, it may happen that that's the way things happen, which would be cool and would tie in with everything we're doing, but uh, we haven't planned it that way. All to say is everything is fine. We are progressing. We just need our solicitor to recover and to uh, deal with some lease issues and sign some papers and all that sort of stuff before we bring you all of that detail. So I hope that makes sense to you. Um, we are in week three of a series we've called Jesus at the Center, and this is a community, if you haven't noticed, or you're new, or you're just discovering faith and church, uh, one of the things we're trying to do together is figure out what does it mean or look like for us to order our lives around the teaching and the life and the presence of Jesus. That's really what all of this uh, is about. And so we've been looking for the last few weeks uh, at a letter, an ancient letter written by a guy named Paul. Um, he wrote a letter to a young church, not dissimilar to us. That's what I find fascinating about the Scriptures. Sometimes you read the Scriptures and think, this stuff's thousands of years old, and it's hard to understand, and there's big words, and there's all that kind of stuff. But the reality is, and I said this in the first week, that the Bible was written by people for people. Yes, of course it was inspired by God, and we deeply believe that. But it didn't just kind of get delivered in ancient manuscripts by some kind of cosmic stork. Like actual human beings with quills or I don't even know what 2,000 years ago people were using to write and what all that kind of looked like. But there was literally human beings writing stuff down and other people passing that down and copying that and translating that and all that kind of stuff. The Bible was written for people, by people. And this letter we've been looking at was written by a man named Paul, and he wrote to a young church in a city called Colossae. Colossae was in the western part of what is now modern-day Turkey. You can actually go there and see the ruins of the city and all that kind of stuff. Paul is writing from prison in a neighboring city to encourage this young church. And he begins his letter praying for them, encouraging them to keep Jesus at the center of all they do. It's so interesting to me that nearly 2,000 odd years later, we're having the exact same conversation. The conversation thousands of years ago that this guy named Paul was having with this young church in Turkey is exactly the same conversation that we are having with you today. How do we keep Jesus at the center of our lives. Last week, Stu unpacked Paul's poem, reminding this young church that it is Jesus, not the Roman emperor, who holds all things together. Jesus, in 2022 language, not our bank balance that holds all things together. Jesus, who is the only one able to properly rule the world, the only one we should choose to make the boss of our lives. And we're going to pick up uh, this letter today in verse 24 of chapter 1. It's page 817 in the Bible sitting beside you. Hopefully some of you have remembered your real Bibles um, today, not your distraction devices. Um, 817 in the Bibles on your seats. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to begin today in verse 24. Come Holy Spirit. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant 
by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing, teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Amen. Let's take a moment and pray together. Father, we come today and we invite you to speak to us. We confess that our lives need your voice, that our families need your voice, that our communities and this world need your voice. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit, speak to us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. For those of you who uh, would say that you follow Jesus, I just want you to raise your hand and wave at me if you find that really easy all the time. Like, this is a ridiculous question. For those of you who are discovering faith in Jesus, we would be lying to you if we said that following Jesus in our lives, in every part of our lives, was anything other than really difficult and challenging and, of course, worth every part of our lives as we discover that, but it's really flipping hard at times. And it's really important for us to understand that and to be aware of that because whenever difficult things come into our lives, we then are ready for that. I was married in 2008, towards the end of 2008, the financial crisis was fully raging at that point. In the first couple of years of my marriage, the news headlines were dominated with things like worst recession since the 1930s. Any of you remember all of that? As we moved into the 2010s with hope of something coming back to some sort of stable or normal kind of existence, things didn't really improve. In fact, in 2019, as the media and cultural commentators reflected on the past previous decade, they called the 2010s the decade of crises. Economic crises give way to a democratic crises, a climate crisis, a poverty crisis, an immigration and refugee crisis, and not to mention what began to emerge over that decade, which we are now seeing very clearly, which is the effect technology is having on the formation of our children and young people. And the truth is, it's not a good effect. Towards the end of 2019, we started to look forward to the new decade that was approaching. And there was this kind of sense October, November 2019 of kind of hope and expectation that the 2020s were going to be a decade of incredible change and our government started to write about really ambitious climate goals and net zero by this date and diesel cars being done with by that date. And then sort of December 2019 
started to be, for those people who were paying special attention, started to be this kind of whisper of something happening in China that was a wee bit concerning. But we didn't really like, you know, we weren't paying too much attention to that. But by the time the new year rolled around, I remember because I had a conversation with Stu before a corporate prayer gathering in January 2020 about whether we should pray about what was going on in China or not. And we thought, yeah, we, we need to do that. It seems like it's a bit kind of mad. And I remember going on a climbing trip in February to Scotland um, with Johnny Hill. And we were sitting in Glencoe, in a hotel in Glencoe, towards the end of February 2020, talking about what it kind of looked like might be coming. And of course, March 2020, everything changed and none of us will ever be the same again. And then you'll maybe remember around kind of Christmas time last year, January, February, you know, the, the vaccine program had been really successful and hope was starting to kind of bubble up again and we're thinking, right, that crisis looks like it may be going away and then war in Ukraine. And the headlines then become war in Europe like we haven't seen since the 1940s. And what's really a bit tragic about the world we all live in is nothing in the Ukraine has necessarily got much better, but the kind of energy in the media and our ability to give that our attention has kind of waned, and so we don't hear as much about that anymore, as much as it is equally as dire and disastrous as it was in February. But that crisis, maybe in terms of our attention, started to move away, and then we started to notice oil prices and electricity prices, and now we're talking about an energy crisis, and the headlines are about the worst winter any of us have ever known. Just nudge your partner and say, I told you we shouldn't have come this morning. <laughs> All of that, and I haven't even mentioned domestic politics or what's going on in the NHS in Northern Ireland. This is the water we have all been swimming in for about 15 years, and you wonder why you're exhausted. I haven't even touched on what's been going on in your personal life as you've journeyed through grief and loss, of family breakdown, of instability in jobs, your own financial pressures, and own personal crises. I wonder how many of you think society desperately needs to change. What do we do about all of this? The Australian philosopher Ivan Illich was once asked, what is the best method to change a society, reformation or revolution? What's really interesting for any of you that like, are into personalities is uh, our, our personalities typically, when it comes to that question, are almost split down the middle. There's realistically about 50% of you in here when asked how to change something would be in the reform camp. Like, work at it, get it incrementally better, do a little bit more today and a little bit more tomorrow and a little bit more the day after that. And then there's another 50% of you who are much more in the revolution kind of personality type, you know, blow it all up, set it all on fire, burn it down, and then we can actually start again. Right, yes. Yeah, <laughs> 
those of you who are married and uh, you are married to the opposite of yourself, that can be really fun. That's Dana and I. Dana is very much in the reform category and I am very much in the revolution category. <laughs> um, when life at home gets hard, she's like, okay, let's just make it a little bit better. I'm like, let's scrap it all and start all over again. It can be a lot of fun. But we do see this play out in uh, how change comes to our society. There are those who will advocate for a reform, and there are those who are currently advocating for a revolution, and we see the tension even play out politically in those two ideologies. Ivan Illich answered the question, neither. If you want to change a society, you have to tell an alternative story. I have never, I read those words years ago, decades ago probably, I've never forgotten them since I read them. Change, societal, cultural, life change comes not through reformation or revolution, it comes through the telling of a better, different story. Our lives are defined by the stories we are told and the stories we tell ourselves. You see, that incredibly depressing list of crises I started with is not untrue. Everything I said is true. It's all happened, but it doesn't have to be the story that we're living in and living out. There is another story, one that's drenched in faith and hope and love. It's not a story that denies the pain or challenges of this life, but it is a story that sustains us and carries us through those very things. Verse 24 of chapter 1, Paul says something that, like, truthfully makes no sense to me. For those of you who read the Bible, I I want you to feel complete permission from me to say that of the Scriptures often. That when we read this ancient text, there's so much stuff in it that our first impulse is that makes No sense whatsoever. And that's the first indication that the story you're reading there and the story you're living out are not the same. That's the first indication that we need to allow God to change the story that we're living in. Verse 24 of chapter 1, Paul says this. Remember, he's in prison. He says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. Nonsense, right? Like, I don't know about you, but when I'm suffering, my first impulse or my first question is, what did I do wrong? Where did I get lost? And how do I get out of here? Like, how do I live a life that has the least suffering possible? Hit rewind and don't have kids. (laughs) Too late. Paul says, I rejoice in what I'm suffering. What kind of story is he living in? And again, if we're honest, we're probably going, I don't know if I want to live in a story that causes me rejoice in suffering. That doesn't sound like a very appealing or a very attractive story. I wonder, have you ever had a moment in your life when things fell apart. Now, I don't mean you came out of work and there was a parking ticket on your screen. I'm talking about those moments where you kind of like, everything feels upside down 
you feel naked and vulnerable and what is going on? And for those of us who follow Jesus, if we're really honest, certainly in my pastoral experience, reflecting on my own life and dealing with lots of you, our first question in that place is, where is God? God, you've abandoned me in this place. Or the other question is, what have I done wrong? Like, what's, what, what, what have I done and how do I fix it? And then that will make things better. When people f- find their way into this community and I get to know them, often I get a story that's something like, I used to go to church years ago, like years ago. Or maybe grew up in church, but I haven't been in donkeys. But then life gets really hard. A crisis happens or suffering happens. And so some of the stories, well, I just need to get back into church. Now, listen, I love that. You're better here than somewhere else. I actually believe that, right? But what we have to be really careful about is that we don't think that life with Jesus is like a cosmic vending machine. That if I do my part, God will do his part. But what I mean by that is if I go to church and I try to read my Bible a bit and I try to be generally a good person, I give some money to charity and, you know, ask people if they need help whenever I see them. If I do that, then God will make my life good. But then when struggle comes or when crises come, then we get really mad at God because we're doing our part and He's supposed to do His part, right? Except that story is not in the Bible. That story is not the gospel. The Apostle Paul, the guy who's writing this letter from prison, talking about rejoicing in the context of suffering, he wrote nearly 50% of the New Testament, right? I think it's fair to say that Paul had a pretty good standing before God, right? Now, I'm going to say some things that are completely and utterly theologically bankrupt, right? They're totally inaccurate, but I think the metaphor is helpful, okay? So the truth is that because of Jesus, we are of all equal standing before God, okay? So that's the truth, okay? That's not the bit that's theologically wrong. (laughs) The bit that's theologically wrong is I want you to imagine that there's like a league table of like standing before God, okay? And there are things that you can actually do to make you go further up that league table, okay? And I want you to imagine where the guy that God chose to write half of the New Testament would be on that league table, right? So my assumption is if we were playing that game as theologically inaccurate as possible, uh, Paul would be pretty high in the league table. Like he's a top four team, right? Like he's a guy that is kind of planting churches all over the world. He's writing the Bible wherever he goes, droves come to faith, ministries are started, lives are transformed. He's like a great example of somebody who's standing before God is kind of what I think most of us would long for, right? Listen to how he describes his life. This is Paul talking about his own life. He says, I have worked much harder 
been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I've received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, because the kind of wisdom of the age was 40 lashes would kill you. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from fellow Jews, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the country, danger at sea, danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked equals the favor of God. You see, we think when our lives are good and everything's going okay, God is with me and he loves me. But when life gets hard and things fall apart, we go, God, where are you? And Paul just gives you that list and says, I have learned to be content in all things. Now that is real hope. That there is something available to us that cannot be dented or stolen or diminished by our personal circumstances. What story are we living in? Paul says, I rejoice in suffering because I am being formed in the way of Jesus. His life is flowing through my life. Paul says in verse 24 that the church is the body of Christ and what is true of Jesus should be true of the church. And Jesus lived a life that stood beautifully shared with us last week that looked like this. A life of sacrifice and service for other people. So often, we tell ourselves a gospel that is absent of the cross. And we think when suffering or the need for sacrifice comes into our lives, we've somehow got it wrong. How confused we are. The gospel of the kingdom, which is foolishness to the world, is come and die so that you can truly live. You cannot make an intellectual assent to the gospel. You can only experience it. It's foolishness. It makes no sense whatsoever. Paul says in verse 26 and 27, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The glorious riches of this mystery. It is a mystery that life is found as we give up our rights to our own life. It makes no sense. And everything that you deal with, every prevailing ideology or narrative in the world around you is the complete opposite. That life is found in getting and holding and hoarding. And Paul says the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of this thing is that as you die, you find real life. It's okay that that's a mystery. For those of you who are more intellectually wired 
and that's somewhat my mind. I love to understand things. I have had to, in my life with Jesus, go, I don't get this, but I've experienced it, and my life will never be the same again. You see, the story we're surrounded by does give us a definition of the glorious life. Paul says this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The story we're surrounded by is the glorious life is a life of finances, fame, and freedom. Glory would be the freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want, right? Like that, that sounds pretty glorious to me. Dana's in Boston. I've been single parenting for four days. Like that's like a glorious life. I didn't even get to watch the movie that I wanted to watch last night. The glorious life is a life absent of responsibility, right? Except a life absent of responsibility is a life absent of love. Which would you like? Glory would be all of your financial concerns wiped away, right? I mean, I deeply resonate with that. A future that has no financial worries or concerns. That sounds to me like the glorious life. A life where we are self-sufficient completely, except a life that is utterly self-sufficient is a life completely absent of faith. Which do you want? Or the glorious life. This one doesn't work quite so well with anyone in the room that's from Northern Ireland and over 30. But under 30, it is alive and kicking. Which is the glorious life is a life of fame. Thousands of followers and likes and a way to monetize all of that attention. There's all sorts of stuff you get bombarded with every single week. People that are giving their lives, their very careers to help people figure out how to become famous so that they can become rich. The glorious life is to be known by the masses and yet we have a pandemic of loneliness in the West. I don't know how many of you paid attention to the census results last week, but one of the things that really struck me was the average household size in Northern Ireland in the early 1960s was five. Now, one. That is a colossal change. And the reality is, whilst we think the glorious life is a life of fame, utterly lonely. And there is, there is no hope in that. Real hope for us is found not being known by the masses, but by the one who made us and loves us. What story are we living in? Never mind the macro crises of the world. I know many of us are walking through heartbreak and loss, family breakdown, all kinds of challenges. You see, the story, the real story that my prayer is you're living in isn't cultural calm, the hope of glory but it's Christ in you, 
the hope of glory. It's the only story that's undentable by circumstance. The only story that can stand the test of time and the challenges of this age. The only story that brings meaning to our struggles and unlocks supernatural peace and joy in the midst of suffering and trial. I have had the blessing of uh, a grandfather who was uh, quite a prolific collector of incredible wine, ruined my palate for the rest of my life. I can't afford the wine that I like. <laughs> and at my grandparents' 60th wedding anniversary, like, the wine list was just extraordinary. And it started with 1956 Champagne, which happened to be their wedding year. Now, what you should know is actually Champagne's not designed to keep for that long, and actually that was pretty rubbish. Uh, <laughs> But he served a bottle of 1953 Burgundy that was possibly the most incredible taste experience I've ever had in my life of anything. What's really interesting is the bottle was the most unimpressive thing I've ever seen. Like you could hardly even make out what it was, covered in dust and cobwebs. You go into a wine shop nowadays, like, I don't know, maybe this is just me, but labels, like, there's like a whole industry of wine labels now, photographs and artwork and all kinds of stuff. I find that quite hilarious because you do know that the label has got nothing to do with what's in the bottle other than, like, the grape and the vintage. I think for many of us, this can be our approach to the gospel, we buy a bottle that looks really impressive and it sits on the shelf, but when we try to drink it, we realize it's rubbish. And meanwhile, there's something extraordinary that on the outside is the easiest thing to miss. But taste it and it'll change your life. The gospel, the story of Jesus cannot be intellectually ascended to. It can only be experienced and lived out. Jesus said of his people that we are to be the light of the world. The late, great Viktor Frankl, survivor of the Holocaust, he said this, what is to give light must endure burning. What is to give light must endure burning. And friends, I have seen that to be true so many times in my life. The lives that I meet that shine the brightest are almost never the lives that are getting it the easiest. They are the people who have paid a price and remained somehow hopeful and full of a sweetness of spirit and a generosity and passion for Jesus. The story that we're living in and living out really matters. Is it cultural calm, the hope of glory, or is it Christ in you? James, why don't you guys come on back up? I appreciate somebody grabbed me on the way out of the 9.30 and said, thanks, Andy, I'm going home depressed. <laughs> My goal is the opposite, because here's the point, that if... What forms us is just what we're talking about. And as news headlines, then yeah, you're probably, you're probably doomed to some of that because the people that are much more expert on this than me 
have kind of taken the last 15 years of news to say this is most likely our new normal. But in Jesus, there is something available to us that can unlock hope and faith and love in the midst of whatever happens in your life and in the news. If you're able, will you stand? What we, what we want to do now is create a moment um, for you to do some stuff with, with Jesus personally. Um, the guys are going to play quietly for a minute or two before they lead us in a song that James has picked in response to what I've just talked about. But before we get to singing what I, I think is a hopeful confession of our lives, uh, I, I would love you to just take a quiet moment with God to be really honest. If this is new to you, it's so easy. Just name whatever you feel like is going on in your heart. Anxiety, stress, hope, excitement, shame, whatever it is. Bring it, offer it, and then invite God to immerse you in His story, to drench you in it again, in the faith and the hope and the love that sustains us from a place that is not circumstantial, Holy Spirit, we welcome you. And we confess we need you. Come now.